I'm Adam Rappaport. Welcome to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Today we are hosting a editor-in-chief summit of Food World honchos, and we are also talking about all those things you screw up in the kitchen when you're trying to cook something great and it just doesn't turn out great. So joining me right now to help is Carla Lolly Music, food director of Bon Appetit, and Allison Roman, senior food editor. Welcome to the show, guys. Hello. Thanks for having us. Well, all right. So as we all know, one of our most popular posts on our on bonappetit.com is called Common Mistakes, which you can you, the listener, can go to bonappetit.com and search for common mistakes and you'll find all these great posts of things that people are always screwing up and, and, and you find folks in the test kitchen are telling them how to do it right, right? Correct. From the basic to the not so basic. So we put a little call out to our friends on Facebook and all our fans out there. I'm like, you know, what are you screwing up? What do you want to know? And we got a, a whole torrent of, of, of responses. And we're going to run through some today. And I'm going to get your, your guys' take, because you're food work professionals, on how to do things right. Um, we get a bazillion requests about eggs. I, as Allison knows, I could talk about eggs all day long. I'm in the test Sometimes kitchen. Sometimes you do. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I do. I'm in the test kitchen every morning making eggs when I get to work at 9 a.m. Um, the first question we have is poached eggs. Please, we need a video, says Kristen Bograd. Uh, we got a many requests for poached eggs. I do not make poached eggs. That's one thing I am completely flummoxed by and intimidated by. What's ba- some basic tips? People uh, generally either their water is too... Uh, not boiling enough or it's boiling. Like they're, it's either going too fast or too slow. So what should it be? I, I like to see like a what couple is, what, bubbles. What is the speed limit? I'd say like a, simmer? a bear simmer a, is the, wow. the technique I, or the term I would use rather. Um, any harder than that and you're, the way that the egg cooks, like the egg gets really kind of rubbery and hard mm-hmm. on the outside. The inside is super runny and undercooked. Like it's really uneven. It's supposed yeah. to be a, a nice... Smooth ba- transition. A, a luxurious from, bath. You're yeah. also going to encourage the ends of the whites, if it's boiling, to get all kind of sh- shrapnelly yeah, and, yeah, shredded shrapnel-y. on the end. Wow, I like shrapnel. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait, sorry, two couple of things. Before you even put the egg in the water, in the bath, we had a great tip, what I thought was a good tip the other month, where you crack an egg into a sieve and the sort of the extraneous white sort of seeps through and you're left with a tighter white. Because a lot of times on a white, there's the, the yolk, the white, and then yeah. the outside of the white is really watery and kind of loose. And that stuff, you can get rid of that. Allison, you kind of like went, eh. Well, no, I think it has to do with freshness of egg. If mm-hmm. your egg is super fresh um, and you do that, you won't actually get much liquid pulling. But mm-hmm. if your eggs are older, um, because the whites are mostly water, there'll mm-hmm. be more. As they age, they sort of become looser like that. So... If your eggs aren't the freshest, that's a really awesome technique. Two other things you always hear. One is make a whirlpool in the water. Number two is add vinegar. Mm -hmm. Need to do both? Need to do neither? When I went to Per Se to do the egg primer that we did, he actually put the egg directly in vinegar for five minutes before putting it into anything. He, you know, claimed that the starts to coagulate mm. that protein and then dumped it into the water. Again, going back to this fresh egg thing, I think that's... Wait, did he do the whirlpool? He did both. Oh, wow. And got a very beautiful tear-shaped egg, which had no white tendrils mm-hmm. and nothing shaggy coming so he, off the side. he, he so, did well. He did really well. (laughs) But I think that the vinegar thing is actually extraneous. I don't think you have to do it. I think if you do anything, getting the water moving around the egg Mm -hmm. makes it beautiful and compact and helps your whites kind of... So you're calling calling BS on per se? I'm calling BS on per se and on the vinegar thing. I just don't... Because I don't want that vinegar flavor either. Mm, I don't think you taste the vinegar though. But I don't think it really helps the coagulating. If you have like, again... Which, you know, hopefully you don't, but a really old egg, sure, do the vinegar. 
One thing is, I think is interesting, you'll see in kitchens of nice restaurants, they don't hesitate when the egg comes out to just with a pair of like kitchen shears, yeah. trim off the, the extraneous sort of frayed whites to make it look pretty. You ever notice that, Allison? Wow, the, the expressions. <laughs> we need to have an Allison cam on these podcasts just for the eye rolls. No, I, I think that that's silly. I think that eggs are beautiful. And I think even when they're a little messy from a poach, I think it's nice. This it's is funny because I just coming back from it's Australia. Like, yeah, like they do it on purpose. They make this like mm-hmm. long spread out thing of the white with See? the they've got with the yolk in the bottom, right and it looked really elegant, really like cool natural shape. Yeah, hard boiled eggs done right in cooking them so they peel easily. Says Aviva. I Instagram. They said the day I'm a fan of the Mark Bittman method. You uh, eggs, cold water, bring it to a, a simmer, a boil, and as soon as it hits the simmer slash boil, turn it off, remove from heat, top on for. Perfect hard-boiled 10 minutes and let it sit for 10 minutes and then take it out. I love how that's the Bittman method when it was Julia Child's method. Really? Yeah. I, I just got it from How to Cook Everything whenever that came out 20 years ago or whatever. Um, and well, Okay, well, Julia Child slash Mark Bittman. But so the other day, I wanted it a little underdone for my sort of – I was doing a sort of a big chef's sort of niçoise sort of salad. Mm-hmm. And so I did them for eight minutes, which kind of gives you that sort of medium slash medium rare yeah. uh, sort of thing. Um, I don't know. I thought that worked great. Um, I did have a very hard time peeling, and that's one thing I'm always so, vexed by. So hard-boiled eggs, old egg is good. Poached egg, you want a fresh egg. So, Opposite. That's, so old that's eggs, the peeling. Old eggs are e- always going to be easier to peel than fresh eggs? Yeah, yeah. people always do their oh. farmer's market egg. Yeah, they want to make a beautiful new soise, and then you go to peel it, and you just like chunk away half of the And egg. there's nothing you can do about that. Yeah, I've no. done a lot of... like brain searching on you know is it the way i'm cooking it is it the way if i shock it afterwards will it be easier to peel by shocking you know, putting in ice cold water. i had a lot yeah. of theories but i really just think it's it's a fresh egg versus old egg um that little membrane in between the shell and the egg mm-hmm. starts to dry out with an older egg and that's what it makes it easy uh, to peel interesting now i also am a fan um of making soft boiled eggs in the morning in the ba kitchen mm-hmm. uh, when i get to work and i'll usually do it i'll take the uh, two eggs drop them in gently into simmering water. Um, I usually go for four and a half minutes, you know, set white but runny yolk. Um, sometimes the eggs crack when you drop them in there, and then the white starts to balloon out. Is that because the water's at too rapid of a boil, do you think? Or what I'd say either that? your pot is too large, uh-huh. so you've got, if your water's moving really quickly, uh, yes, but... Too much hot water. Well, or you're just not dropping them in gently enough. No, I'll drop them in pretty gently. I use one of those little spider little basket guys, so I, I gradually let them in. But I think I think I have the water too hot sometimes. I think there could be a hairline f- crack that you can't even see. Yeah. That Ooh. as soon as the protein starts to jump Expand. up, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it goes through. Um, all right, Allison, this next one is for you, uh, the pastry queen that you are. Pie crust, they always wind up tough no matter how gingerly I handle it, says Terry Deeds. Um Pie crust, something else I'm intimidated by is it, but the people who make pies like you, you always insist how easy it is. Is it really easy or is it just because you've done it a million times? Uh, Probably a little bit of both. (laughs) I think anything you do a a lot of times becomes very easy. But, you know, I really, when every time I make it, I try and think, okay, how could I mess this up? As a person, if I've never done this before, like what in these steps would I, you know, conceivably blow? And I think that people, the number, almost the number one thing is uh, adding too much water. And the mm-hmm. second would be overworking. Um, people are constantly saying, oh, this pie dough is so dry, because often our instructions will say, add water by the tablespoonful until your dough comes together. Um, and I think that their idea of what's coming together is a lot wetter than what yeah. we intend. So, so you're doing typically, are you doing typically just 
butter and flour and salt. What's in your pie crust? Butter, flour, salt, sugar. Sugar, yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're not – so if you're not doing a lot – but now the butter, should you put in the freezer first to get it really cold or what do you do with the butter? I don't think you need to freeze your butter. I think if, as long as your water is super, super cold. But the butter should be very cold. It's, mm-hmm. it's not one of those things you leave out at room temperature before. No, you want it as cold as... Right. If yeah. it's frozen, it's going to be really hard yeah. to, to get into the nice, even smaller pieces okay. you need them. Okay, but... I'm t- more of a novice, and I would say probably you are too. I mm-hmm. like to cut the butter up as the first step, and mm-hmm. then I'll put it back in the fridge. Yeah, into little because cubes. for people who aren't as experienced, like, the deck is stacked against us. Mm-hmm. So anything you can do to help that stay cold is good she's so experienced yeah. it goes really fast and the butter doesn't have time to warm up but like for those of you in arizona or with hot hands yeah. put it back I mean, in the allison fridge has old been, hot hands over here allison <laughs> is basically a grandma from the south she's yeah, just she's done a million times but in generally I, I i think the point is like so you've got this crumbled up butter mixed with the flour and sugar and salt and it should be shaggier and looser than you think. It's just, this is not bread dough. And it, it should be kind of crumbly and lumpy, but then you pack it together into mm-hmm. a disc right. and then put it back in the fridge, and that's when it'll sort of firm right. up and everything. What happens basically is you add your the proper amount of water, and even if it looks a little wet, it's sort of like if you've ever made pasta dough. Mm-hmm. As it sits, the flour hydrates. So mm-hmm. you come back to it in an hour, and it looks like a completely different dough. So trust in the recipe, trust in the process. Uh, stop adding so much water. And you want it, it is pie-like um, biscuits and that you want those little pebbles of butter to sort of stay solid so that when they bake, they sort of melt and you create those air pockets and that's what makes it flaky? Yeah. If you're creating like a totally homogenized dough, then it's going to be a little bit greasier. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's a problem sometimes when people bake pies. Um, they complain that it almost looks like your dough is frying yeah. because the butter has leached out. That's what happens when your butter gets too warm and you've created like a, a homogenous mixture. You definitely want pieces of butter, pieces of flour. Yeah. It should look drier than you think it's supposed to, and there should be bigger pieces of butter than you think. Mm-hmm. All right, another pie crust question from Victoria Chang. Blind baking pie crust, exclamation point. Mine always bubble up under the pie weights, which are those cool little like, metal pebbles, and the sides shrink down. So this is like when you're making a pie that you're filling with like a custard filling or something, mm-hmm. and you bake the this pie crust first. to me. But I doesn't it always her. happen? Doesn't it always happen? <laughs> I, it seems like the pie crust always shrinks when you blind bake. It shouldn't. Um, really? If your pie dough is overworked, that means uh, you're overworking the protein, the gluten is, is forming, it will shrink. It will contract, yeah. no matter what. Um, so... Don't overwork your pie dough. Your pie shell should not shrink. Also, um, the bubbling up under the pie weights, though, I've never – maybe mm. – I mean, I can't imagine. They're, they're pretty heavy. They should be. All right. Well, we'll look into that. I've never okay. seen anything bubble up, like, more weight, yeah, possibly. Yeah, just more pie weight. We have a few other queries. I know it's basic, but I can't make a roux. It always burns or makes the dish taste too much like flour. Ick. I'm going to take this one, guys, if that's all right. Um, I love making – Gravy during Thanksgiving and other things that require a roux. Like sometimes, mm-hmm. like, I guess, kind of when Dumbo? I'm making. Well, yeah, maybe mac if I'm and making. Cheese? Yeah, mac and cheese. Rappo's famous pot pie. Yeah, mm. my, oh, my pot pie. That's what I was going to say. Um, I think, first of all, first, you, be, the flour, to get rid of that floury taste, you want to toast the flour in a dry pan first. So put oh, the white flour in a dry pan for about a minute. So it gets, like, it gets almost a little nutty and you get rid of that raw flour taste. And then you're going to pour in, like, say, if you're using butter if, as your fat, um, you're just stirring it around over the heat till it, you know, gets, like, gets that sort of sandy, granular sort of pasty thing. And just cook that for a little bit. Uh, but you don't want it to burn. Obviously, you know, trust your nose. Trust your nose as a cook. Always trust your nose. Uh, and then once it's nice and brown, and depends how dark you want to go, but then you're ready to add your liquid, whether it's chicken stock or whether you want to put some milk in there. 
I don't know. It's not hard, is it? I mean, I'd say keep your heat medium. Medium, yes. Very good advice. Don't ever, yeah. There's certain things you want a really hot pan for, like a ribeye steak. Roux is not something you want a really hot pan for. Good advice, Allison. Give yourself some time to react. All right, AR, another one for you. I can't master caramel. It always tastes burnt. It'd be helpful to learn with ice cream season upon us. Angie Duffy Hernandez. Um, this is a funny thing uh, because I feel like oftentimes when our prep school brainstorms, we're looking at the issue, we're saying, okay, what techniques can we you know, teach people? What's tricky this month? And caramel always comes up every time. Caramel sauce, sugar, and water really is all, you know, and then heavy cream butter if you want. But well, wait, it, that's what I don't get. What do you mean the sh- heavy cream butter if you want? If you're just, I'm saying caramel is is caramelized sugar. Okay, that's yeah. what that is. But and, caramel sauce has oh, when you add the other stuff, right, right. Okay. It ha- can have okay. vanilla bean. It can have yeah. you know salt. Yeah. Um, I think the number one complaint people have is crystallization, mm. and I won't get into it because it's a really nerdy conversation. But it's basically a temperature thing when when the temperature is too high or too low in a concentrated area, like a, like a pot, it'll cause the sugar to crystallize. But to prevent that, um, you can add two things, either acid in the form of cream of tartar or a squeeze of lemon juice, or an inverted sugar, which is, um, you know, like corn syrup or honey, and adding wow. a little bit of those to your caramel it to start with. It basically just confuses, the sugar crystals are like, yeah. think of them as like perfect little geometric things, and they want to like link up together, and when they do, that's when your caramel, just nothing is happening. You look in the pot, it's got those foamy bubbles. It's not changing color. It looks like soap water. It's really weird. That means the sugar is crystallizing. So if you add any of these at the beginning, it just it just won't happen. You don't have to brush down the sides. You don't have to cover it. You don't have to do anything. It will not happen. Mm-hmm. Nothing to worry about. You guys are dropping all sorts of knowledge over here mm-hmm. at the One World Trade Center. Um, what about, so then what about the like the size of the pan or the, you want a thick bottom pan, I assume, or I have no, you know, I don't you want know. A heavy bottom pan. Um, I think sometimes people's pots are too large uh-huh. and that almost will guarantee your sugar to crystallize. Yeah. Um, you want something that fits almost perfectly over the range. So whether it's a gas, electric, um, induction, having your pot fit perfectly over the burner will make sure your heat's super even. If and you're making just caramel, not to kind of create some crazy pastry sort of confection-y sort of creation, but if you're just making caramel, will you use a pastry thermometer or are you just going to eyeball and smell it and say, that that's the color I like, I'm good with that? You mean like for a sauce for a sundae yeah, or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. I eyeball it by color. Yeah. I think that if you're not making a, a candy mm-hmm. and you don't need it to harden to yes. a specific texture. All the weird hardball crack yeah, and all that stuff. Yeah, I think stuff that you can look at it and smell it, like you were saying with the roux, use your nose, kind of react to it um so if you're so if you're making a sauce you get the the caramel the sugar in the water to that nice brownness you want and then you add cold milk and butter or how do you do that i whisk in butter and Mm. i you know whisking just chunks of butter not Mm -hmm. melted Uh no yeah Mm -hmm. chunks of butter um i do that first and Mm -hmm. that'll sort of cause the temperature to drop a little bit temperate can we say it tempers it it does temper it a little bit Um, and that way when you add your cream it doesn't you know it will splatter a little bit but it's not going to be that like volcanic eruption You know, cold cream, hot caramel, it will seize. It'll be kind of a sticky, chunky mess. So and just keep whisking and it'll come back to, to mm-hmm. form. But yeah, having like room temperature cream mm-hmm. will help you. Be careful that. when you do this, obviously. All right, final question. Uh, with summer almost upon us, I want to learn how to cook lobster properly and then take it apart to get the meat out. I find it very intimidating for some reason, says Donna Washington. Um I don't know. Personally, I think lobster's overrated, but apparently America loves it. So how is what's the right way to do it? 
I think we all came to agreement that we don't boil our lobsters, right? We want to steam and not boil. So Why? not it dilutes the flavor, does it water out a bit? There's just no no reason for it. So two one and a half, two inches of water in the bottom of the pan, get as many lobsters in there as will fit, cover it one and a half, one and a quarter, one and a half pound lobster, cover, and I think we we're calling it at ten minutes. And you think one and a half pounds is the optimal sort of size for an eating I do. lobster? It's about I think, standard what you'll find, too. And I think things get weird when they get too big. Mm-hmm. The texture, the tail meat isn't nice anymore. It's really hard shells to Old crack. And tough. Yeah. yeah. So how Who wants ha- that? So you take it out when it's done, then you let it cool, I assume, if you're going to use it for a lobster salad or a lobster roll or something? Yeah. You don't need to put it in cold water or anything like that. Just take it out, let it cool down. And then, I like to break the tail away from the body right when it's done. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a little bit like the carryover heat. Carryover cooking will be worse if it stays intact because it's oh. like building. So, the, so I'll take it out of the pot, and then I separate the tail from the body, and then that way it's not overcooking. Like yeah. It's letting steam escape. Yeah. Oh, and then when idea. it's cool enough to handle, pop your claws off. The way that I learned to do it was in a restaurant where you had to do 60 lobsters in a day. I always squeeze the tail inwards mm. until I hear it crack. Yeah. That's just how I learned to do it. So sort of taking it from the top and squeezing those shells inwards and you'll hear it pop. And then you can just peel the two sides and then, back. Yeah, then you peel the, the and shell And it just off, opens up like, it's like right cracking out. the paperback of a, you know, thick book. You just crack it open, tail comes right out. Could, I've seen Mainers do a weird thing with a fork where they go in there. What about, could you be one of those persons that cracks the claw and gets all the meat out of the oh, claw yeah. without it falling apart and at all? And the, th- the big get yeah. is that thumb. Yeah. Yeah. If you can get the thumb to come out, that's one like of life's the greatest ultimate. pleasures. You're just like, yes, I did it. Totally. I will say those, uh, Joyce Chen makes a pair of scissors, mm-hmm. uh, like those red little snips. Love Joyce. And they're great for getting the knuckle uh, Ooh, the knuckle. Yeah, out but... of that arm because you just literally snip it open. And it just peel. You can peel it open because if you try to crack the knuckle, you just end up always crushing the meat. Disaster. Yeah. Lobster lovers love them some knuckle, right? People say it's the best part. That's, it's I've like heard the, that. It's like the oyster chicken. In the chicken, yeah, yeah. the oyster. Yeah, that, that's I, I, I can relate to that. Uh, well, guys, thanks so much for joining us in this special Common Mistakes edition of the Bon Appetit Foodcast. Love it. Pleasure. All right, and you listeners, you can go to bonappetit.com, search for common mistakes, and find all our common mistake posts from the last year. Enjoy. Thanks, guys. Bye. Coming up next, Carrie Diamond, editor in chief of both Yahoo Food and Cherry Bomb, as well as Adam Sachs, editor in chief of Sever Magazine. Stick around. All right, welcome back to the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm still Adam Rappaport. I'm joined now by my fellow food editor people and good friends, Carrie Diamond, editor-in-chief of Cherry Bomb and Yahoo Food. Good morning. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Happy to be here. We are very psyched to have you here. And a very good, very old friend, colleague. Not that old. You're pretty. I mean, I'm pretty old. Yeah, you're pretty old. Adam Sachs, the newly anointed editor-in-chief of Savar Magazine. Adam, welcome. Well pronounced, by the way. <laughs> I thought the same thing. How often do you get people who mispronounce Sever or just people don't wanna, know? People want to talk about that a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's one of those words if you say more than like four times, 
it just all sounds wrong. So you haven't said it out loud yet. I don't. I'm not allowed to say it out loud. Well, let's I'm, let's get started. We're talking about food media and such, and publications and all that, and our sort of our careers today. And Carrie, it's interesting. You came into this world of food a lot differently than perhaps Adam or I did. You worked at Women's Wear Daily, and then you did PR at Lancome, and you got into the whole sort of beauty fashion world. For you listeners who don't know Cherry mm-hmm. Bomb, how would you quickly? What's your quickly description of Cherry Bomb? Girl power plus food. Yes, a cool, and it's a twice a year beautiful journal, beautiful kind of boutique magazine. But I think one of the reasons that magazine so has caught on like it has and was so interesting is that you didn't just come from working at Food & Wine or Bon Appetit or Gourmet for 20 years. You had this very different background, and you brought a whole new perspective to the world right. of food. Yeah, I mean, more than anything, what inspired Cherry Bomb was when I became a restaurateur. I, I hate to even say that word, but I do own restaurants, so... I got into food because I started dating a chef. I mean, it's that simple. I had no aspirations to work in the food industry or have a restaurant or do anything like that. And we started dating. He asked me if I wanted to open a restaurant. I said, sure. (laughs) (laughs) As one does, right? So we, I thought he meant like eventually, but he meant like tomorrow. So next thing I knew, we had a restaurant and the restaurant business is so fascinating. It's kind of lonely. I came from, like you said, beauty and fashion, where I had this really nice community and supportive network. And I go to this and it's just like, oh my God, I don't know anybody. I don't have anybody I can call to ask about these things. Nothing, you know. And so... Cherry Bomb kind of came out of my craving for this sense of community. Yeah, I think, I mean, sex, I've written about this before, just in terms of working in a magazine. Um, and you and I have very sort of similar career paths. But I think one of the cool things is, well, then you went freelance. We can talk about that. But just when you are actually working at a magazine, you're very much part of a team and you have this community and a lot of people who are on board with what it is you're trying to accomplish. And I, I've always totally fed off that and really appreciated this sort of that creative energy and sort of camaraderie you get when working at a publication. Yeah, there's something nice and collaborative about it. I Yeah, so we I used to work in magazines on staff, and then I went for a, a little over a decade freelance. So that was a radical departure where suddenly you're, you, know, you go from being part of a team and seeing people every day and ha- having it be very social. To never to putting to pants on. Just not if you don't have to, no. <laughs> And then a couple years ago, yeah. you got hired Somehow. at a full-time job yeah. at Tasting Table, which is a website. How do you describe the Tasting Table as a website? Yeah, Tasting Table is a, a culinary newsletter and website. Um, yeah, we, I, I have a son, William, who's about four, and we were, we were having a daughter, and I just realized that you know, as much fun as, as being a, a globetrotting food writer and travel writer, I didn't want to be an absentee dad who was sort of, you know, Skyping in from some beautiful beach somewhere where I was alone trying to make it sound, you know, exciting for a magazine. So I decided I had to get a job. And um, and that was great. This and was what, three, three years ago? Maybe? This yeah. is about three years, three years ago. ago. Let's talk about some of your specific, both your respective publications, um, Sack. So obviously, Tasting Table sort of having proved your mettle there opened the door for you to get this job at Saver. And I'm curious when you, you've had a few issues now. I was just curious, this is kind of a personal question. I was a big, 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 big fan of the original Sever back in the mid-90s when Dorothy Cowens and Christopher and Melissa and, and Coleman. Coleman Andrews were there. And it was such a unique, beautiful, beautiful magazine. Um, when you sort of rebrand or relaunch a magazine, how conscious were you of that era? How much did you want to sort of draw on it? How much did you want to differentiate yourself from it, you know, in terms of something that does have a strong history like that? I mean, I think that it's always been a magazine about following food to its source and, and really 
uh, celebrating, you know, international different cuisines in depth. And it, it was created at a time when there wasn't, you know, a million blogs about every every uh, niche of food. And so it was yeah, it was the only point. thing you could get. And it came, you know, it came in your inbox and it, it was sort of this game game changing magazine. So I definitely, you know, we haven't done a kind of formal relaunch or redesign. Mm. It's meant to be sort of evolutionary and not, you know, some big change. But I think also the the food media landscape and the food landscape has, has changed a lot in, in the last 20 years. And now the, these generations of chefs who grew up reading Savour um, ha, are doing fascinating things all around the world. And so it, it, it's I think one of the things I want to do is, is re-engage with that world a little bit. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about just the state of food media today. I mean, I emailed you the other day, Sachs, and you did not return my email. Oh, no. Yeah, about saturation point. I think we're very lucky in that we're at this moment where food as a subject is very hot, and it's a ton of momentum and, 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 and all this sort of, like, rush of interest in it. But then, you know, we're also at a point where you've got Bon Appetit and Sever and Cooking Light and Food and & Wine and all these magazines, and then there's this whole sector of these sort of more, I guess, boutique-y indie, sort of indie, we like indie, the term indie. indie Gather nice. and, and, and Fool and Lucky Peach and Cherry Bomb, which are all awesome publications also. And it, it, is there like a tipping point? Is there how much interest can there, and not to mention all the food video, and it's just like, wow, it's everywhere you turn. Well, I was just mm-hmm. thinking that, you know, when, when you and I were starting out at, at Time Out and writing about food, it was, it was always hard to get friends of ours to go out to dinner people people weren't interested even free meals they weren't interested in chefs they didn't know they weren't sort of interested in restaurants as sport in new york and now all these people who've never who, who you know from high school they're like oh james beard james yeah. you, you hear this guy won a james beard award or they're watching so and so on chopped or something and there's it's just it is saturated the the popular culture i think in a way going back to i remember when i was in college i was one of those guys who would subscribe to gourmet magazine back then this is late 80s and you know there were Two restaurant reviews a month. No, there was California right. and New York. New York. You know, compared to now, where there's every day Eater and Grub Street, and everyone's you know posting stuff like nine times before a restaurant even opens. Yeah, I-, I think the equivalent when we were younger was definitely the music industry. Yeah, because you had tons of different kinds of music. You had to find your niche that you were really into. There were tons of music magazines. If you were really into a certain kind of music, you would go look for all the magazines from the UK. I mean, remember all the UK music magazines yeah. when we were in high school? But I think music was the same way back when we were in high school, what food is today. Hey, I think that's right. I, I also think it's, you know, there's all this, there's this glut of food media, but people don't really distinguish what they're doing because right. there's, it's all food media, but some of it is industry gossip. Some of it is, you know, cooking how to, uh, mm-hmm. some of it is, pure sort of restaurant geekery and you know yeah. who's going who, where and then the weird thing is that this is all kind of mashed up together now so you have you know i think you know eaters doing reviews people uh in everyone's doing a little bit of everything it's, i mean i think it's exciting you know who was that chef mark vetri who got really upset a few weeks ago months ago in uh Huff, the huffington post he wrote mm. that essay about food journalism is as stale as day old bread or something and I really, mm. I, I don't know, I was kind of upset by the piece that he wrote because first off, he was lumping criticism and j- criticism and journalism together. Right. And I, I, don't, I think he was having a hard time distinguish between not being happy by what critics are writing. Mm-hmm. A few of our listeners or users or readers wrote in, uh, at NomNerd wrote in and said, I'd like to know what they think, they, being Adam and uh, Carrie, think the differences are between food blogging, quote unquote, and food writing, or if they feel it's the same. I think it, it comes down to, I mean, that's a distinction without maybe a difference because it's that it comes down to the um, 
where you're doing it, who you are, the, uh, you know, how, how with, with what frequency, what kind of soapbox you have to stand on. There's, you know, there's quality blogging and there's terrible, you know, capital W writing, yeah. capital J journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, I think doing one or the other, whatever the distinction is, isn't any sort of guarantee of quality or, or, or care. There's typically more lackluster than there is good. Quality is by definition the rarer. Like, you know, of every 10 movies that mm-hmm. come out in Hollywood, probably, I don't know, two of them are really quite good. Yeah, I don't differentiate between food writing and food blogging. I mean, there are great blogs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you just know the good stuff when you see it. And, and you what, do. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it's a golden age for food journalism. I mean, we talked about the indie food category. I mean, there's so much good stuff coming out of the indie food category with all those magazines you referenced, Lucky Peach and, and Fool. And I like to include Cherry <laughs> Bomb in Cherry that. Bomb, yes. Exactly. Um, it, there's so much good stuff out there, but it, it is overwhelming. I mean, yeah. you have to really sift through it and just find the stuff that you love. Um, and before we send you off, we're going to hit you with some rapid fire Uh-oh. questions. Ooh. All right, guys. And I want to hear both your answers. Let's start off matcha or cold brew? Oh, we just did matcha madness for the whole month of March. <laughs> March, at, like March madness. I get at, it. At Yahoo Food. So I have to say matcha. Are we talking like iced matcha or what? Are we, are I don't know. Ma- just answer the question <laughs> matcha or cold I brew? I have a whole issue with. with- I would prefer cold brew, but I'm having some coffee issues these days. <laughs> I don't want to. We know can do about a separate that. show on that. Uh, I like this one: edible flowers or edible arrangements. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I don't understand why edible arrangements exist. They're huge, though. I know, I know. Edible flowers. <laughs> yeah, obviously edible flowers, but I, edible arrangements must be like a CIA front or oh. something. Because who, <laughs> has anyone ordered one of those? They also have like retail spaces, like brick and mortar ones you can over walk into the world. Yeah. That you know what? That's a good Yahoo food story. I'm going, I'm going to get to the it. bottom Please of edible it, cause, arrangements because I cannot do it in bottom of a teat. Uh, what's your go-to airplane drink? Water. Wow. <laughs> Sex. That's not your answer. What's yours? Uh, back of the plane bourbon, front of the plane gin and tonic. G and T. Interesting. No, wait. Let's flip those. Okay. Because you get better bourbon up front, but gin and tonics are fine at all the, all the time. All right. Well, I like that answer. I knew I had an answer, but I forgot. I got oh, this it is a very good one and very of the moment. Bone broth or green juice? Oh, gosh. The bone broth thing is so silly. Aside from the, the zeitgeisty trendy name, I like I just like a very you like stock. bony broth. I like stock. Um, Ina or Martha? Oh, I can't choose between them. I love them both. Yeah, Ina you just... have to choose. <laughs> I can't. Don't make me. Um, oh, my God. I love them both. Like I don't think I'd have the career I have without Martha, but Ina, I just adore. Yeah. I... I respect the hell out of Martha Stewart for what she's done and all she's contributed to our industry and magazines and everything. But I love Ina. I'm, I'm def- I, I like Ina, but I'm, I'll take Team Martha here for them. Final send-off question. Olive oil or butter? Again, what? I, I can't choose. How you have you to choose? choose. That's the point. <laughs> what does that mean? I'll, I don't what, like what do you this. Cook? Which one do you love? Which one do you cook with? What, if you had to choose one, I don't what like would it this be? game. That doesn't make any sense. It does make sense. Choose one. No. Why not? <laughs> Just choose one. Please, choose one. I mean, They're they, wrestling on the floor they now. They go so nicely together. Uh, well, guys, thank you so much for coming by today. Carrie Diamond, Cherry Bomb, and Yahoo Food, Adam Sachs, Ever Magazine, guys. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is recorded to a digital device in the small conference room on the 36th floor of One World Trade Center in New York City. Our engineer is Mitra Kaboli, with production assistance from Bill Cushing and Carrie Polis, and is produced by Scott DeSimon. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or at bonappetit.com.